At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hello and welcome to Ascent Dental Radio, a program dedicated to the balance between the clinical aspect of healthcare and the business of healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Coughlin. Good evening. This is Dr. Kevin Coughlin, and you're listening to Ascent Dental Solutions with a focus on knowledge, education, development, and training. I want to thank our sponsors, Vocal Dental Supply, Patterson Dental, and Henry Shine. Without their support, these podcasts would be difficult. I also want to give a shout out to David Wolf and his podcast team for their expertise in putting out what I consider a terrific product. As far as tonight's discussion, I was very fortunate to ask Dr. Tom Ornt if he could spend time with our listeners, not just to educate them, but to educate me with his vast knowledge of business, the books he's done, the clinical dentistry, and the superb treatment that he's provided, not just his patients, but his teams. And was kind enough to accept another podcast with us tonight. And Tom, thank you so, so much. In summary, I know we talked quite a bit about PPOs and your philosophy and suggestions to our listeners. And tonight we have some additional topics, but perhaps in summary, for those who missed that first podcast, how about an introduction to yourself, what your plans are, how you're planning to help and continue to help our profession, and the most important asset of our profession, which are our patients. Kevin, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity to come back again. Uh, The first time was great, and I appreciate speaking to you again tonight. You're quite welcome. So the short bullet on my background, I'm a general dentist, practiced for 22 years, did a lot of TMJ, bonded porcelain occlusion, uh, a lot of appearance-related dentistry. I was the first dentist in Massachusetts to be accredited by the American Academy of Cosmetic Dentistry, and then I served for six years as an examiner for the ACD. Went through all the Dawson continuum, struck everything that you can imagine. Like a lot of dentists, we all we all go to a lot of CE. But even with all that, 27 years ago, I found myself sitting in the office of a bankruptcy attorney and was told to file three days later. Had I filed, my divorce attorney told me that I was going to lose my house and my practice. So that was taken off the table. Bankruptcy was not an option. And I'm not going to go through the whole story again. But the the end result was I was forced to either lose everything or learn how to run a business. And at the same time, stay focused on quality dentistry, best option dentistry, helping my patients achieve optimal longevity and health. And um, it was an interesting learning experience. It worked out quite well. One of one of the things that I said on the last show was, everybody thinks that I'm going to talk about you should leave PPOs, but leaving PPOs is the very last thing I would recommend. And what I mean by that, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, is that, yeah, you should leave PPOs if you want to. Some people are fine with them and that's okay. But if you choose to leave PPOs, which I did, it shouldn't be done haphazardly. It shouldn't be done emotionally. It shouldn't be done without a plan. And so make sure whatever you do, that you put yourself in solid financial condition first, where you might go up 150, 250, quarter million dollars or whatever that number is that you'll feel more comfortable 
and then slowly, carefully, and with a well-executed plan, begin to withdraw. And even at that point, what you say to the patients, when you say it, how you say it, who says it, all of that is critical to maximum retention of the patients on the way out of a PPO. So having said all that, I went 100% fee-for-service in my practice. When I took over my dad's practice when he was dying of cancer, we removed 13 of his 15 plans in about two-year period, very slowly and carefully. We went 90% fee-for-service in that practice. And um, last time we spoke, we just started to talk about, well, what would I do as far as bringing more new patients in so that you can beef up a practice? Because that's one of many different ways that we would recommend, but it's certainly a big way. Uh, and so let's talk now about new patient attraction. You asked me, you know, let's talk about social media. And my response to you when we when we talked about that pre-show was, yeah, but you can't, I wouldn't talk about social media without talking about traditional marketing as well, because there needs to be there needs to be some kind of a contrast and comparison. So let's start there. I probably did more marketing in my two practices than 95% of other dentists. At one point, I was doing 100,000 a year just on one radio show. It was WBZ Boston, had the largest footprint in New England as far as its bandwidth and its reach. And you might say, well, you know, it doesn't matter because you're in a private practice, you know, in just one or two locations. And so having that kind of a reach around New England, you're wasting a lot of money. But the truth was people drove for hours because of that radio program. It was, it was crazy. They were driving by 5,000 other dentists because they heard something on the radio, which always, always amused me. But anyway, radio was good. Did a lot of uh, newspaper freestanding inserts. Did a lot of ROP, which is run of the paper. Uh, did a lot of direct mail. Today, doing more uh, with our members' social media. However, it begs the question, with social media, let's say you're going to focus on the two biggies for dentists right now are Facebook and Google. And we have people who do really, really well with one. We have people who do really, really well with the other and swear by one or the other. They're both really good. It just depends on your area and your expertise or who you hire to do it if you're hiring somebody to do it. So there are some numbers. Um, without the data, you can't really run a business. You, you can't maximize profitability of a practice and you can't help your patients as much as you'd like to either because when you're financially stressed, you're going to make poor choices. And so one of the, one of the bits of data, very simple bit of data, but every dentist should know this, is what should it cost? How much should I be paying per new patient acquisition for traditional marketing? And what should I be paying per new patient acquisition for social media? What's, what's a reasonable number? If, if the marketing is effective, let's say you hire a company to do it, which is fine, and they do some marketing for you, newspaper, radio, direct mail, that would be traditional, uh, Google, Facebook, um, others, you know, Instagram. Um, if, if you did social, okay, so here's some numbers. The traditional marketing metric that I use is a rough, roughly $250 per new patient acquisition. Now, can you get it below that? Yeah. If you get multiple practices, you can probably get it down in the mid 100s, you know, 130, 150. One of my members has 28 practices in three states and, and he can't get it down below about 120, 130 uh, yeah, 150, it rises up to. But for if you, if you only had a couple offices like I did, if you're more, you know, one office, two office, a number is about two to 250 is a good number. Now, would I pay 300 or 350 per new patient acquisition? Would that be okay? Well, that depends on what I'm doing in the practice. It depends on my fees, depends on how many PPOs I'm in, depends on how much I'm writing off, uh, and it depends on the type of dentistry that I do. 
Um, another metric, by the way, that's super helpful that almost no dentists really know is what's your hourly productivity as the dentist, not your practice, but as the dentist. So I'm going to give you some metrics for that as well. A very low average would be $400 an hour, $500 an hour. A better average might be for the dentist, this is a GP, dentist to be doing six or $700 an hour. That's, that's decent. We've had people, I had a speaker once who came in and he was doing $1,400 an hour as a GP dentist, just doing bread and butter dentistry. So those kind of numbers are kind of stratospheric, but something in the four to six, four to 700, $800 range. Now, why is that important to know? Well, how can you figure out how much you're willing to pay for a new patient when you know? Okay, so what, what are you going to bring in for that new patient? That's another number that you need to know, which would be specific to your practice, which is the ALV. What's the ALV? What's the average lifetime value of your patient? How long do they typically stay? And, and what, what's that number? Well, if you don't have a number, you can at least use these national metrics. And these were shared with me by um, uh, Alan Thornburg of, of AFTCO. And these numbers are, are now prorated for today's, today's uh, inflation. The average lifetime value of a new patient in a general practice is $6,200. So write down $6,200. So if you don't know yours, at least use $6,000 as a rough number. Now, how long do they stay? Alan found, and Alan, by the way, was the, the largest transition specialist in the country with um, 60 or 80 offices. And Alan said that they typically will stay six years in a general practice. And then they either move away, they die, they go to another dentist, but, but they're gone out of the practice on an average of six years. All right, so let's go back to the metric of 250. I'd pay 300 or 350 or 400 if I'm getting implant cases, Invisalign cases, clear, correct, uh, if I'm doing you know reconstruction and that kind of thing. If I'm doing more bread and butter and I'm not really good at converting cases and doing more, more of that kind of work, then still two or 250 is fine. Now, social media, $60, $70, $80 is on the high end, 100 bucks maximum. Wow. So we're paying 250 to 350 and happy with four as long as you're getting good cases with traditional newspaper, radio, direct mail, flyers, all the traditional offline media. Go online and do it right. And you can do it for somewhere between 50 and 100 bucks a new patient. And, and Kevin, again, I'm preaching to the choir. You already know everything I'm telling you. But, but, but a lot of the dentists have never, never been looking at the data. Okay. So one of my mentors from many years ago, um, who was amazing was Dan Kennedy. And Dan would ask the question, he, he wouldn't ask this question about social media because he wasn't talking about social media back then. But if, he, if Dan were talking to you today, he would ask the question, why in the world, let me rephrase that. Dan would say, knowing what you know about the cost of an acquisition of a new patient, which is about 60 up to about 100 max, let's call it $80 or $70 through social media, being done effectively, would you want to also do traditional marketing when you know that it's going to be about three times the cost, the acquisition cost? So the gut reaction would be absolutely not. But the, answer, the, the, the right answer is maybe yes. Now, why maybe yes? I'm going to answer it in about 10 seconds. Before I answer it, I want you guys who are listening Guys, ladies, I'll use that just a general term for everybody. I want you, I want you all to, to ask yourselves, why might I, why might I want to do both, even including traditional marketing, if I know that doing social media well could, okay, give you a few seconds to think about that and see if you got this one. It depends on a lot of factors. One of the factors is, what's your capacity? Let's say you have one office 
you have five chairs and you have 70 hours of hygiene, which would be about two full-time hygienists. And you're open five days a week, maybe a couple nights, taking the weekend days off. I, we underutilize our facilities unbelievably. It's terrible. I had a dentist this week who said to me, Tom, I'd like to you know, bring in a specialist, but there's, there's no room in my practice. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I only have three chairs. I said, oh, okay. So tell me why you can't bring in a specialist. He said, well, I just told you, I only have three chairs. I said, well, do you work weekends? He said, oh no, we're not there Saturdays and Sundays. I said, what time do you close? Which nights do you do? He said, oh, we don't do nights at all. I said, he said, we close in fact at five. So if you multiply out the number of hours that he's closed, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, I don't think anybody was working Friday night, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, and then Saturdays and Sundays. Sundays, isn't that you know the day that people go to go to church? And, well, yeah, but we've had members who were in communities, and, and they're they're scattered here and there around the country, where either Seventh Day Adventists or the Jewish population, or there's about three or four religions where the Sabbath is reversed, and they appreciated that the dentist was open on Sundays. So again, I'm not suggesting that you should or shouldn't be open nights or weekends or holidays or not holidays, but but you get it. Our capacity is so underutilized. All right, so let me go back to the why would I use traditional marketing and social media. If I couldn't get enough new patient flow only by social media, and by the way, it's going to depend on your area and the expertise of the people who are doing your, your social media marketing. Let's say you're getting, well, I have one member who's getting 90 new patients a month through social media. He didn't use, need to use traditional marketing at all. I've had others who got a good rate. They were getting it for you know, $70, $80 per new patient acquisition, which is good, really good, actually. But in their community, there was a limited number of patients out there who were you know, responding to the social media. So she actually wanted more new patient flow than she could get just from Facebook and Google. And so using traditional marketing, even at 250 or 300 is still a good idea in that situation. So that's kind of a, an overview of why use one, why use the other, which ones would I use? And again, the jury's out Facebook versus Google because I know people who can do really, really well with Facebook. One of our coaches is a marketing coach and she does Facebook ads for our members and she does really, really well. But I also know people who do Google really, really well. So uh, by the way, Dan would tell you, neither one is correct. Dan would tell you the only correct answer in a business is to test both. And you may find that both work for you or you may find that one crushes the other and then you back off of the one that's not doing as well. Um, I promised you though, that we would talk tonight about what do you do with these new patients once they come in in order to retain them? So uh, I called it, uh, when we spoke earlier, I, I called it maximum new patient retention. And I'm gonna tell you a unusual story that happened to me when I was uh, practicing in my Framingham office. And Isabel was my office manager in the Framingham office. One day she came up to me and she handed me a large legal pad with four or five, six pages with scrawl, everybody's first name, last name, Name after name after name, hundreds and hundreds. Okay. So I said, Isabel, what is this? She said, look at the names. So I looked at it. I said, I don't recognize any of the names. What is this? She said, that's my point. Again, this is that comment we, we talked before about when a woman says something and a man has no clue what she's talking about. I was like, what do you mean? She said, these are all the new patients that after you came back from the Dawson continuum and started changing the way you did your presentation, your, your diagnosis and so forth. She said, you become a much better dentist. She said, but you're, you're scaring everybody away. And I had never even thought about that. I just did what Pete taught us. I love Pete. I just love Pete. And I loved everything I learned clinically. And, and I was trying to do everything that he taught us as far as when I did my exams after finishing that continuum, 
uh, 90 minutes with every new patient. It included everything that you can imagine, which would be the normal stuff, you know, whether it's a full mouth series of x-rays and periodontal probing and all the normal stuff, oral cancer screening and head and neck exam. But it also included three dollar bites. It included models, Centra check with three in order to make sure that we were we were incentric every time and we never missed. And it was real, we were, we really became very good at it. And I was doing all this stuff, and then I was presenting the case and you know, come on back with your your husband or your wife or your spouse or your significant other. I was doing everything that he taught us to do, just the way he taught us to do it. And um, it didn't occur to me that I was chasing everybody out the back door. Hey, we did some good cases, but a lot of them just left because they were asymptomatic. Now. Two caveats, two two exceptions to this, so so so, I don't, so you don't uh, misunderstand what I'm suggesting here. If you are already doing really, really, really well with case acceptance, I mean, you can see an asymptomatic patient whose last dentist told them you're fine, you don't need anything, you just need like one filling or one crown. So last dentist said everything's pretty much good, and you look in their mouth and you you know that they need a lot of they have periodontal disease, they have, they have six millimeter pockets, and they have deep deep subgingival calculus. And they've got you know all sorts of stuff going on there. They've got wide open margins on 30-year-old amalgams with fracture lines going down through the dent. So they get all this stuff, but they're asymptomatic. If you are already amazing at helping to a patient to perceive the need for that kind of that level of care in the absence of symptoms and getting them to accept that care right out of the gate when you first met them, then don't listen to what I'm about to say. And I'm very serious about that. Because if you have that gift and you're one of maybe one percent who have that. Kevin, you probably have that, and, and Pete certainly had that, and Whit Wilkerson we know has that because Whit's now running the center, and uh, Jeff Scott, uh, Pete's dentist for his last 12 years of his life, Jeff speaking for our event this fall, and, and Jeff certainly has that. So if you're a dentist like that where you can, that's great. So for 99% of us mere mortals, we blow the patients away and we don't know how to, how to help them, and they run out thinking we're crazy and we're just looking for money. So Isabel was right. I knew she was right, but I didn't know how to fix it. And it took me it took me probably a year to come up with what I'm about to share with you. And I call it the 2020-20. So if you're writing any notes, it's called the 2020-20 new patient exam. And it will help you retain the vast majority of your patients. It will give you the opportunity to build trust and relationship, which is, by the way, why the patients ran out the back door every time I told them, you know, you need 20, 30, 40, 50... They, they, they didn't think anything was wrong. These are asymptomatic patients, not the ones who come in and say, I know I need a rehab, but these are asymptomatic patients who think everything's just fine. All right, so what is the 2020 new patient exam? I modeled it after the medical model. The medical model, I had a checkup not too long ago, a wellness checkup, you know, annual, and I went in and I was there for an hour, which is normal, but the first 20, 25 minutes weren't with the physician. The first 20, 25 minutes were with a medical assistant and he took my blood pressure, he did pulse oximetry, he took my weight, he asked me if there were any changes in medications, had I had any hospitalizations, so he went through everything. And he complains, well, what's this happening? So when all that was written up and done and tests and everything else, baseline metrics, then the physician came in. Now, how long do you think he was in the room? Maybe eight minutes? I don't, I don't know what his quota was, but maybe eight minutes. And then he left. And he said, you should see our lab phlebotomist. So I went in phlebotomy, urine analysis. So I went in, I, I was there for about an hour, but I only saw the doctor for less than 10 minutes. And that was fine. That's the medical model. So I said to myself, what if we still did an hour exam, but instead of trying to hit them over the head with everything that I see that I know that they need, that it would help them, that would benefit them, 
what if, just what if, instead of doing that, I developed a system of diagnosis and case presentation that didn't chase them all away? Now, it's easy to do, but it's tough to figure out how to do this ethically. And I'll tell you how to do it ethically and do it the right way. It's easy to do. You just don't tell them to do a lot of stuff. So again, I'm going to tell you how to do this ethically in a moment. Um, and you'll understand why this, this makes perfect sense. In fact, this is similar to what they taught us in dental school and why we veered off course, I don't know. Because in dental school, if a new patient came in, they would never allow you to treatment plan, long-term prosthetic, rehab, whatever, until certain phases of dentistry were done. The emergency phases, the periodontal phase, get, at Tufts, I think it was the column five when you get checked off or column three, whatever, for, for peri. Okay, so we veered off somewhere. We, we went off into the weeds. Um, so I have three rules to retain a new patient. So if you got a pen, I'm going to take a quick sip, but if you got a pen, write these down. Here are the three rules to retain every new patient. Number one is don't take much of their money. Now, what's an exact number? I don't know, maybe a thousand dollars or less. So if you, if, if the patient out of pocket portion is 600, $800, you're fine. So don't take much of their money. Number two rule is don't take much of their time. If they're asymptomatic and they don't think they need any dentistry and you go in there and say, you need, you know, seven visits for this plan that I'm doing. Okay. Number three is don't hurt them. Now, people look at me when I say this, Tom, you're not supposed to hurt anybody. I know you're not supposed to hurt anybody, but let's say you've got Mrs. Jones who's been with you for eight years and she's a wonderful patient and you've done some wonderful dentistry for her and you got a great relationship and you accidentally hit the nerve on a block and she jumps You'll apologize profusely. She'll say, well, you know, that's fine. And you'll get over it and she'll get over it as long as you don't keep doing that to her. But you, you do something like that once or twice on a patient who's been with you for years and has a lot of trust. It's not the same as when you do that to a new patient. You got a new patient and on your first injection, you kill them. They're not coming back. You got a new patient and you don't get them profoundly numb and you drill, drill down near the, the, the nerve, they're not coming back. So don't take much of their money. Don't take much of their time and don't hurt them. All right, so what would fall into that? How can we... How can we create what I would call a phase one plan? And by the way, this is really important. I never mentioned to the patient that this is a first, that this is a phase one plan until I finish. And it's almost like an afterthought. And I'll explain how to say that to the patient in just a moment. So I'm writing a phase one plan. The patient doesn't know it. Uh, and obviously I need to find out, are there any symptoms? Do you have any problems? Do you have any complaints, any concerns, anything you need or want to do? And this is the patient says, no, everything's fine. Right? So do our exam, do the perio, do the FMX, do everything you need to do. And then what things would be okay that would fall into those first three rules? Well, certainly perio phase one, if they need deep scaling and root planning, that, that needs to be done right away in phase one. And as long as they're profoundly numb, they'll be comfortable and, and so forth. So that's fine. Perio phase one. Let's say you're using Sopra or Canary or Diagnodent or the new uh, Itero attachment or any any of those things that allow you to diagnostically find pit fissure and groove caries in the absence of explorer tugback. And you find three pit and fissure and groove caries, and that's fine as well, because those are going to be quick and easy. Sometimes they can be, often they can be done without anesthetic. That's fine. So basically any, let's say they ask for whitening. I'm okay with that. Anything small, easy that keeps the money down and keeps the visits to just a few. So there's your phase one plan. You've talked about it. They're happy with it. They're also happy that you didn't tell them that they needed all of their old giant amalgams replaced with crowns and expensive dentistry and you told them now you didn't tell them everything else is fine and here's where th this is the only way you can do this ethically at the end of this discussion once they've accepted that you say and oh by the way 
Mrs. Jones, I'm looking at your back teeth, and it looks like you've got quite a few old, uh, quite a few of those old mercury silver amalgam, uh, the, the silver fillings. It looks like they were done quite some time ago, and you just shut up. And she's going to corroborate. She's going to say, well, yeah, those were done, uh, you know, when I was a kid, teenager, whatever. But she's going to corroborate that they're back there. You know that in her mind, she's thinking, oh, no, now, now, here, here's the other shoe going to drop. He's going to tell me I need all this work. Now, bear in mind, this is an asymptomatic patient. We've already determined that. So now I'm going to ask what I already know. It's like an attorney never asks a question they don't already know the answer to. So, Mrs. Jones, you, you mentioned that none of those teeth are hurting you. There's no, no pain, no problems with those teeth. Oh, no, doctor, they're just fine. They're just fine. Okay. So I made a note in your record. And by the way, I did make a note, a case note. I made a note in your record that when we finish with this first phase of care, now in the 2020 new patient exam, that's the first time that the patient hears that this is the first phase. So I made a, a case note that basically just said that when we finish this first phase of care, I'd like to have you back again in the not too distant future for a more complete and thorough, comprehensive evaluation of all of those back teeth, your bite and so forth, just so we don't miss anything important. Would that be okay? And I will tell you, I did that for years and years and years. 99.9% .9 of the patients were like, yeah, that's fine. Because they didn't want you to start. Who are the 1% or so that did say, well, no, I'd rather find out everything you can if you could. Those were the people who had a cafeteria plan and they had money to spend for the next year and they had to plan it within the last quarter of the year. And, the, and you know, it was rare. But 1% said, no, I really, I need to tell my work, my HR people, how much I want to set aside and can you tell me what that would cost? So 1%, 99% were like, yeah, doc, that's fine. Now, because we have been very upfront that this is only a first phase, that we have not done anything comprehensive evaluation of their bite, their joint, the, the, all these older fillings that look like the, they're a little bit you know, wearing down at the edge and so forth, that is fair game for recall exam. And so at the recall exam, I, I'm sure you guys have heard of the Mercedes study. It's it's ancient study at this point, but basically Mercedes study did a, sorry, Mercedes-Benz did a study and the study asked the following question. How many touches, how many interactions does it take? How many positive interactions does it take before a new patient customer or client is ready to dig into their wallet and hand you over a whole bunch of money? And the answer to that was it takes six or so. Now, the first one is the phone call. So when they called your office, as long as they had a really nice interaction, I'm sure they did. That's number one. Number two is when they came in for the exam, maybe number three was the cleaning. So there's no exact number, but the point is by the time they come back on recall, you've got trust, you've got relationship, you've got the Mercedes study satisfied. And it's time to begin doing more comprehensive evaluation. Now, would I do it during a recall exam or would I set up a separate comprehensive exam? That, eval, eval, that depends on how much need there is. So you can make that decision at that point. But this patient is actually prepared for this at that point, far more so than they would have been earlier. Uh, does, that, does that all make sense, Kevin? I think that's why they call you the gym guy. That's why our listeners are here. And once again, I cannot thank you enough for your expertise, your time, your knowledge, your experience. And I'm sure our listeners got an enormous amount of information. As we bring to a close, is there a way they can reach out to you if they wanted additional information and knowledge? I know you're coaching. I know you've got a whole system. How can our listeners get in touch with you? I do appreciate your asking. So if the listeners would like to safely reduce dependence, safely reduce dependence on PPOs, they can download my free special report. 
It's called a four-step system that dentists use to safely and predictably withdraw from PPOs and increase net profit. And they can get that at my website, which is PPOFO. So it's PPOFOE, PPOFO.com. If they'd like our help in mapping out a step-by-step -step plan, which would be specific to their situation, specific to their office, uh, to safely reduce PPOs, they could schedule a what we call a breakthrough call with our team. And the breakthrough call can be scheduled at PPO Exit. That's P-P-O-E-X-I-T, P-P-O-Exit.com. And Kevin, thank you so much for allowing me to share the gems with your guys. Wow, it was a pleasure. The best of luck to you, your family, and thank you so much. For the audience, thanks again for your time. We really appreciate it. You've been listening to Dr. Kevin Coughlin. This is Ascent Dental Solutions with a focus on knowledge, education, training, and development. In closing, uh, personal thanks and gratitude to Dr. Ornt. A terrific podcast. Really appreciate it. And I also want to say thank you to Patterson Dental, Henry Schein, Vocal Dental Supply, and also David Wolf and his podcast team. Have a great night. I look forward to chatting with everyone in the very near future. Everyone have a good and healthy evening. Thanks again, everybody, and talk to you soon. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.